I'm Katherine Spearing, and this is Uncertain. Tears of Eden, a nonprofit supporting survivors of spiritual abuse from the evangelical community and home of the Uncertain podcast, is hosting its first in-person retreat con October 20th through 22nd. This retreat con will have the intimacy of a retreat with the intentionality of a conference. In partnership with the I Got Out movement, the retreat con will also feature a special event story jam highlighting survivor stories live and in person. Registration is currently open and spots are limited. Sign up with a link in the show notes. This podcast and the work of Tears of Eden are supported by the generosity of listeners like you. If you'd like to see the work of Tears of Eden continue, consider giving a one-time donation or becoming a monthly supporter. You can do that by visiting tearsofeden.org support. Okay, so I cried probably three times while editing this episode. It hit me in a very personal place as I am currently writing more of my story as my experience as a woman and both a hyper-religious fundamentalist Christian cult and also my experience as a woman in the church. So this was a very personal episode to me and I'm super excited to share it with you. Megan Kenyon is a recent... MFA graduate from Washington University in St. Louis. I will put her full bio in the show notes. When Megan Kenyon's niece was born, it propelled her on a journey of exploring the messages she received from the church about being a woman, culminating in an art showcase featuring the church experiences of 22 women across generations and denominations. The findings were remarkable, but probably not surprising. In this episode, I'm going to describe some of the art that was featured at Megan's show, but if you want to see a photo of the pieces we are describing, please have a look at our Instagram at Uncertain Podcast. Here is my conversation with Megan Kenyon. Congratulations on getting your MFA and super excited for you. And I loved your students showcase. Awesome. It was amazing. I wanted to sit by your book of things for <laughs> hours and hours and hours. I was just like flipping through it. And then there was like a line building behind me. So I just had to yeah. <laughs> move on. So I, I felt very lucky that I got to see all of it in person. And for, for listeners, your student showcase featured 22 women ranging from ages 17 to 22 from 12 different Protestant denominations, white, black, cis, and non-binary, representing a range of sexual orientations, marital statuses, and career paths. And they were all asked a variety of questions around their experience in the American church. Did I miss anything? I think you said from 17 to 22. It's from 17 to 72. 72. 72. Yeah. 17 to 72. Yes. It's quite a wide range. So tell me the story of what prompted you to create this art? Where did your desire to pursue this come from? Uh, it's a very highly creative project, but also a pretty specific scope of research. And I would just yeah. like the story behind that. So it kind of all started in 2020, which I feel like 2020 is going to become the new 2016, like everything that people are like, oh, it all goes back to then. But I was working on an art show, a solo show in 2020, where I was looking at different kind of hot button issues that had been kind of in culture that had caught my attention and kind of some of my passions. And in almost every single one of those cases, it was something that I felt passionate and strong about, but saw people at my church responding negatively to. So mm-hmm. like things around racism. And as I was reading books and trying to like understand, like, how is this still in like, everyday reality like you know I'm from St. Louis so like when Ferguson happened I was actually away at college when it happened but the fact that something like that happened in my hometown yeah you know what do you do with that like you and so I was doing that kind of work but then I saw all the people that I like went to church with and was in Christian circles and communities with not engaging in that conversation like very specifically being like we don't want to talk about that here or talking about it in a very negative way and starting to sound slightly more like the racist people I'd read about in history (laughs) And yeah. less like the people I thought they were that, you know, they're people who love Jesus and they should love other people. And so mm-hmm. why wouldn't we listen to friends and family that have these kinds of stories? And so I was thinking about what does it look like to bring people into conversation, especially when they're conversations that can be kind of charged and scare certain groups of people off from having that conversation. Like they feel attacked. So then they lash out instead. 
And so I created this whole art show as a moment to kind of like stop and consider and to not necessarily walk a mile in somebody's shoes because at a certain point that's kind of impossible, but to at least pause long enough to try to see it from somebody else's point of view to see some merit in how they're looking at the world and that your way of looking at the world isn't the only way. So that was kind of the basis for the show. One of the paintings that I did in that show was about kind of the Me Too movement and stories of sexual harassment and assault that had started to like really come out and kind of looking at and supporting the voices of women in that moment and like, why aren't women believed? And then through that process, I read a book by Rachel Den Hollander describing kind of her story of abuse by Larry Nassar, but then also describing abuse she suffered in the church, both as a child and as an adult, mm-hmm. and how that really impacted her ability to advocate for herself and others and those kinds of things. And what was really interesting is we're pretty close in age. We're both from the same part of Michigan originally. I was born just like about an hour south of where she was born. And we we're both homeschooled and, you know, came from really good families with parents that taught us how to like, you know, advocate for ourselves and we're very involved. And yet, you know, these things happen because that's a large part of our story. It's like you can do everything right and somebody can still victimize you. Like yeah, that's exactly. it's not a lack of. You always want to blame the outside like forces. And like if I don't, yeah. do this, then abuse won't happen. And it's yeah, it's it's, it's the great equalizer, unfortunately. Yeah. And so thinking about the fact that like her story and my story in so many ways were so similar and yet, you know, had slightly different outcomes because some of the same things didn't happen. And so thinking about how, like, I could have been her just as easily as she could have been me. And so that thought was kind of rolling in there. A couple months later, after the show opened, my first niece was born and it was 2020 craziness. And so my mom was my mom's actually a labor and delivery nurse and a doula and she was the doula for my sister but wasn't able to go with them to the hospital when they ended up going to the hospital because she ended up having to have a c-section and before they made the call for the c-section she was trying to push she'd been in labor for like two days nothing was happening and she was trying so hard because she really 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 wanted to have the baby naturally and just was like at the end of her rope essentially well my mom was facetiming with her that whole like last hour that she was pushing and trying to like suggest positions talking to the nurses and finally the doctor's like we're just gonna have to do it like you know it's getting to the point where it's gonna get scary and so they had never peaked like they had no idea what the gender of their baby was gonna be when they got pregnant and so because they my sister and my brother-in-law are both theater kids and wanted to have the it's a girl or it's a boy moment like you have in the movies (laughs) and so (laughs) we wanted to create a movie moment (laughs) right exactly so my sister, we're on FaceTime with her for like this hour while she's pushing. It's really like, just like really hard watching her trying to do this thing and she's not able to do it. And like, it's really strange. I'm single and don't have kids, but I'm her older sister. And so I'm watching one of my younger sisters do something I've not done. So I feel like a little bit insufficient in the moment. Like there's nothing I can really contribute other than like taking pictures of all the grandparents, like leaning over, like worried about how things are going. And mm-hmm. about an hour later, She's had the C-section, both baby and mom are healthy. She gets on to the FaceTime again and says, everybody meet Betty. And like the whole room explodes. And I had this like equal moment of like absolute elation, but then also absolute like terror because she was a girl. And this moment of like, it suddenly- I resonate with that so much. Well, it's interesting. My sister and I never talked about it for like two years and it came up. I posted something on social media about the work that I'm doing. And a lot of it is because of my niece and my sister shared that post and shared some of her story that she'd had the exact same thought, like laying there on the table after a C-section, they hold the baby up over the curtain. And her first thought was it's a girl. And just like flooding through her mind, all the things that she would have to deal with because she was a girl. And that was the kind of a, there was this thing that happened in that moment, thinking about all the stuff that I had read over the summer and had been struggling with and thinking about, thinking about how these places that should be safe for women are not necessarily safe. Cause that was a huge part of a lot of the stories that I was reading, thinking about my own life and the, some of the things that I had started to realize were being weaponized against me as a woman in a Christian space. And then realizing if nothing changed, all of that would happen to my niece. And then at the same time, 
I'd been raised my whole life, not so much by my parents, but by a lot of the Christian circles that we were involved with. Like I was homeschooled for, I think, 12 years. And we were part of some fairly conservative homeschool groups, you know, people at our church, even though it's not a super conservative church. But there's this general prevailing idea that to be a good Christian woman, you'll end up being a wife and a mother. And that the way that that kind of gets packaged depends on if they're like really strong about that. But it always kind of comes with this baggage of like, if you don't end up being a wife and a mother, somehow you didn't really fulfill your full calling as a Christian woman. And there was, I was standing there literally in the living room, at my sister's house on the FaceTime, seeing her having achieved the two major things you have to achieve as a Christian woman and kind of wrestling with, I don't think I'm going to have kids. I may never get married what was the point of making me a woman? Like if God created me and that was the only thing I was supposed to be made for, Mm -hmm. why would he have bothered to make me a woman? It'd been much more efficient to make me a man. So I could do all these things for the kingdom that a single person could do. Mm -hmm. And that became kind of the impetus then for the work that I did at WashU because I started at WashU about a year after that moment. Um, And that was kind of the question that I had kind of going in was what if, everything I was told or taught about what it means to be a Christian woman is a lie because it was based on cultural expectations and the consolidation of power instead of on scripture or even tradition in some cases. Mm -hmm. And what if there's a better way to do that? So that way my niece doesn't have to grow up with the same kind of baggage that I grew up with. And so, yeah, yeah. So I did get get a chance to see this showcase. It was incredible, very powerful, very moving. I wanted to read some of the the things that I just like snapped photos of. Yeah. As just kind of a, a allow folks to kind of have a little bit of an entry into what this was, even though they can't see it. Yeah, I wish, I wish the downside to a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that is Doing a podcast as a visual artist is kind of a strange thing. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, bummer, but we will, we'll figure it out. So you have this handwritten note sitting on a pulpit, looking out into a, a church parking lot. And it says, turning a blind eye to abuse is just as sinful as the abuse itself. Boom. There is a photo of a shower head inside of just like a plain white shower. And it says the church does not prepare people for sexual situations. It was never said explicitly, but sex is about the man and his ego. It's about helping him with lust. You can't say no too often. He is always going to want it in parentheses. He won't. Sex always feels great, in parentheses, it doesn't. You can't go from trying desperately to never be alluring to being as confident and experienced an actress. To be fair, secular culture didn't prepare me either. Another one says it's just a woman in the middle wearing all black and then two women on the other side facing backwards also wearing black says men blow you off when you have an idea i learned this in the church at my job and in life in general another one is a woman sitting in a chair with a bucket is she washing clothes yeah yeah and it says my mom used to say that in the church women's roles were doing anything the men didn't want to do And finally, this is my favorite. (laughs) Uh, It's just a white piece of paper with some like red paint splotches on it. And it says, when I think of how the church teaches women purity culture, I think of nasty, manipulative women controlling patriarchy and creepy dads. (laughs) Love that one. So I was super lucky to get to be able to see this. And as, as far as like the research goes and the project itself goes, what are some things that you expected to see in this research? One of the things that's weird about this research is doing this research as the insider of something. It gives me both an advantage and a disadvantage simultaneously. One of the advantages is having been in the church my entire life and been in mostly evangelical contexts my entire life, it's really easy to see the structure of things as it kind of becomes revealed. And as I do research and kind of 
it's kind of like if you were making a house and you found mold in your house and had to pull all the drywall off and suddenly you see down to the studs and the structure and you're like, oh yeah, I'm not surprised by this. This is what I expected to see in some cases. And this makes total sense. The reason this crack is in the walls because it started over here. And if I move this thing, I'd be able to fix it. The part that's tricky though is now you're living in a house you've completely dissected and there's crap everywhere and rubble and you're trying to determine, can I even still live here? If I moved to a different house, would it actually make it any better? You know, like, and that was kind of the big, the big moment I had at WashU. Part of the process as an MFA student, uh, Masters of Fine Arts student, is that every end of semester I have to do a review with a panel of faculty who... I have to do a presentation for them with the work that I've done. They ask me a bunch of questions. Most of the time, I don't know the answer to them. And I stand there looking like an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> but in the very first review I did, they asked me a question. I don't even remember what the question was, but my answer to it was, it's really hard to deconstruct a house you're still living in. Mm. And then like instantly burst into tears, which wasn't helpful. <laughs> but it was this kind of realization that like, never going to be research that I could be completely objective about because it impacts my actual life. And yeah. that part of the passion and the interest of understanding women's experiences in the church and how patriarchal systems within Christianity that don't have to be there, but are still there, how they impact women, people of color, sexual, you know, different sexual orientations, that sort of thing, like that, that I can't escape from it. And so it has a different emotional burden than it would if I was just studying like when math was invented or something like that, right. you know, like something that yeah. I didn't necessarily have to care about in the same kind of a way. And so in some ways, I think that's made the research part of this much more interesting and deep because mm -hmm. I know kind of where to look and how to look and I have an actual genuine passion for talking about this and for making change and that I'm still a practicing Christian. I still attend a church. Like I'm very much involved and interested in the idea of making actual change in a church that we don't have to just accept the things that we've seen. And so I feel like that gave me, it gave me a, maybe a more nuanced position than maybe somebody standing outside of the church, looking at and all the scandals and all these like revelations of abuse and narcissism and like just really, really toxic systems and theology could just kind of write it off as like, well, that's dumb. Just get rid of all of it. Like I had at least one professor at WashU that she was nice about it, but that was kind of her thing is like, aren't we past religion? Like, you know, it's kind yeah. of, you know, and I'm like, some of us are not past it. Some of it, like our entire life is like dictated by this thing. So we still find some value in it. And, and so how do we you see just in like the political landscape of how deeply religion impacts everyone's life. It is not yeah. peripheral, peripheral or fringe. Yeah. Well, that was the thing I had, the one struggle I had starting at WashU, a lot of, most of my professors were really excited about what I was doing and the fact that I was an insider wanting to critique something I was inside of and to do it in a really both academic and artistic kind of a way. But I constantly got in the first year kind of like, who's your audience? Like, is this going to reach past the church? Are you talking to anybody other than like the church community? Oh, this is so that interesting in? that, that they're like, is, is this going to apply to other people or just yeah. these people? I get asked so much that it, with my writing a lot with like yeah. what I'm working on. And they're asking me like, do you just, are you just talking to people who are still in it? Or do you want this to have like a wider reach? And it just feels so weird to me because it's so right. connected. Like it's just- right. I'm living my life and to think that my life won't apply to yeah. <laughs> a wider world. Right. It's like, you're weird. Like it's just, right. yeah, it's, it's othering a little bit. Yeah. I think one of the things that happened was I started to learn how to articulate myself better. So that helped a lot. Just like learning, just like crash course through like feminist history, art history, like all these different kinds of discourses. Felt like I got shot out of a cannon in the last two years, yeah. to be honest. But one of the things that, Helped me a lot, weirdly enough, was when Roe v. Wade got struck down over the summer. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, I could provide a link to, you thought conservative evangelical Christianity and its values is just some weird subculture that you could basically ignore because they're a bunch of freaks. Exactly. However, they have an outsized amount of power to make a lot of influential change in a lot of different sectors yep. of popular culture political culture like all those kinds of things they're not just staying in their pews and their stained glass walls like they're going to be everywhere and so i started to reframe the project as 
I'm working with and talking to and kind of elevating the stories of people who've been on the front lines of this battle for a really long time. Mm -hmm. One of the ways I had to write a thesis, like a written thesis to go with kind of the visual thesis for the project. And one of the ways I described it in the thesis was that the women of my group were kind of canaries in the coal mine. Like evangelical women have for a long time noticed the issues related to power, related to theology that promotes submission and subjugation to authority you know, all those kinds of conversations, like they've been on the front lines of it for a really long time, but they didn't often know how to articulate that and who was going to listen to them. Mm-hmm. And so this was an opportunity to elevate that story and to say, hey, listen, before anybody gets like blindsided by this, let's just tell you it's been here for a really long time. And this is exactly what it looks like and where it likes to hide. And that it's possible to love Jesus and to not have to be like that. Yeah. And so, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Kind of the reverse of that question. Was there any <laughs> research that surprised you that you weren't expecting? Oh, that's a really good question. One of the things that has been a constant struggle for me is trying to understand why the impact of spiritual abuse on actual lived lives is just so cataclysmic. Mm. I have, there's like, actually there's more like 25 people in this collaborative project that I'm calling the Women's Chapel. A couple of them are not participating like full-time. They're more just kind of mentors or people that I can kind of lean on a little bit as I'm having conversations. So their stories are kind of like in the zeitgeist of it, but not necessarily at the forefront of it. But of this group of ladies, several of them have talked about like really specific and glaring moments of abuse and neglect in churches and a couple of them are struggling with like really severe symptoms of ptsd and things like that and trying to kind of navigate that journey i had a moment i part of the work that i'm doing is i meet with this group of people as often as i can and i had one meeting in june of last year where i had everybody go around and talk about a moment when they felt like their voice had been taken away from them and then to go back around and talk about how did they get their voice back like what was something that they did or did they even feel like they had it back and i realized right now as you're talking about this like it was (laughs) such a good conversation i mean i had at that conversation i had people that were like just graduated high school there's a lady there that is in her early 70s and is a grandma she's got her grandkids i think are like older than me even and so like you know it was like a multi-generational multi-denominational you know like just conversation and yet there was like i think 10 people there and as we went around every single person was like 100 percent therapy like that was the thing and it was like i realized i was the only person in that group that has never actually been to therapy And I was just kind of floored for a second of like, you mean you all went to therapy? Like you all felt like you needed to go to therapy and then realizing, well, maybe everybody should be in therapy. That would actually probably help a lot. Maybe I should go. But I (laughs) I had this kind of like, that's been kind of this constant struggle. Like I still feel like I don't entirely understand why, because at a certain level, it doesn't make sense. Like your pastor being kind of, you know, a jerk shouldn't cause so much fallout for you at an emotional spiritual level and yet it can mm-hmm. you know or like i read a book by it, are you Klein? saying that are you saying that because it doesn't make sense that one person can have that much power is that is that kind of where that's i think from? Some of that I think is, I was actually just reading a story that was just on the Roy's report. I think it dropped yesterday about, it was Vineyard Anaheim that I think has since been renamed out in California and like the stuff their pastor has been doing for like the last, honestly, 20 years. And it's mind boggling how he has so quickly consolidated power and gotten away with some of the stuff he's gotten away with. Like, I don't understand like how anybody could have been allowed to be in that kind of a position without any checks or balances and for it to have gotten this bad. Like, it was the same thing when I listened to the the podcast series Christianity Today did on Mark Driscoll. Like, there's so many moments where it's like, why didn't anybody stop him? Like, before he got mm-hmm. awful. Like, there were so many moments when somebody could have done something. It's like, somehow, we've built a system where there are no checks and balances. Mm-hmm. And there's no way to stop people that are actually really good at using that system because exactly. they're narcissists. Or because they're always been about power. And they're control. intentionally or, using it. 
Yeah. And so that was definitely some of that. I think some of it too is realizing, and this was the part that took a long time to kind of unravel for myself because it involved doing a lot of personal emotional work that I didn't want to do, <laughs> which is why I cry at every review that I ever watch you, which is <laughs> unfortunate. <laughs> uh, but it was realizing that things we think of as basically safe or kind of benign actually never were. And they're having an effect on you whether it's on your subconscious, on your body, deep in your emotions, that you're able to kind of rationalize away, but the the real you isn't able to rationalize it away. It's constantly being attacked and going into fight or flight, trying to protect itself. And at some point, if you ever are able to step outside of that and start to see it, all of that stuff comes back. Mm-hmm. And depending on how much was down there and what happened is probably going to determine maybe some of that response. But it honestly doesn't take, like, if you think about it, if you took a little tiny drop of poison versus a big drop of poison, your body is still poisoned. It's still going to have to try to work with that mm-hmm. and maybe try to survive it. And so that was the thing I started to realize was these things I've thought of all of my life as not being a big deal because in a lot of ways, it didn't impact me in an obvious way. And so I didn't think of myself as a victim of Christian patriarchy because well, I don't have that person's story. Like, you know, I wasn't sexually abused at a church and my pastor never yelled at me. I was never on staff with a, you know, narcissistic leader. Like, you know, I was able to kind of compartmentalize that sort of a thing, but then starting to realize like, I was still a part of purity culture. Like I still totally bought into that. I was still part of like quiverful thinking, even if that wasn't something my family actually did, you know, like some of these other things, Mm -hmm. like, and I still had every intention of, when I became a wife and a mother being a submissive wife and like raising my kids through homeschooling, like not that any of those like homeschooling is necessarily bad, but definitely some of the streams that I was in were not healthy. Mm -hmm. And so the realizing that one of the only things that saved me is the fact that I'm single and don't have kids and protected me from, you know, (laughs) or that I have this, like I dodged a bullet experience. Yeah. And so that was the, and then starting to realize that maybe I didn't dodge a bullet. Maybe I just thought I did. Mm -hmm. Maybe I actually have some damage down there that I wasn't willing to deal with. And that, I think honestly, that last piece didn't really click in until the last probably three or four months. And some of it was realizing I carried a lot of rage in relationship to doing this research, which I think is a natural part of doing it Mm -hmm. because if you're not angry about it, then you're not really paying attention because Mm -hmm. what is happening is so gross Mm -hmm. and awful. I had an opportunity while I was at Wash U, one of the professors there, Marie Griffith, taught a class on abuse in the church, which was the first time a class like that's been offered at Wash U. Yes. And it was the most amazing class I've, I think, ever taken. But it was also really, really tough because we're like constantly reading like survivor testimony, reading about things in the Catholic church and the Protestant church, like that. And this was an actual class called abuse in the church. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like I had to do you. papers and read books and write discussion posts and try to keep up with all of the undergrads at WashU are really brilliant. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. And this is for listeners. This is Washington university in St. Louis. Yes. Yes. The Harvard of the Midwest, they call it. <laughs> really? Is that really what it's yeah. called? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Actually, matter <laughs> of fact, if you if you ever go to WashU, if you look down kind of the main drag, that main gate, it's patterned after Cambridge. And then when you walk through, the quad that's behind it is patterned after Harvard. Oh, like, they've right. made it very obvious. <laughs> okay. It's yeah. very beautiful. It's, it's a very yeah. beautiful Yeah. It's very expensive, but it's very beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> but Yeah. So, okay, yeah, that was, so you said abuse in the church. It was called, that was what the class was called. Yeah, yeah. So I was taking that class, having these discussions. And throughout the entire class, the professor kept saying, like, check in on your mental health. Like, if this gets to be too much, like, please let me know. There's all kinds of accommodations that can be made. You know, and I just thought, oh, I'm fine. Like, I'm doing great. I'm so, like, pissed right now. I could survive anything. And I, I was not really listening to my own body and my own spirit in what it was kind of taking in and having to digest constantly on top of like my own personal research and like keeping up with stories that were breaking, like the Matt Chandler thing that was going on over the fall and like all that kind of stuff. So like, it's like every couple of weeks, a new one, a new one. Yeah. And like, I just can't stop myself sometimes. I'm just like taking it in. Cause I'm like, Oh, this is all content for what I'm working on. And I'm still working with my group and listening to their stories, which in some ways are tougher because they're people I personally know. 
And in some cases, they're people I used to go to church with or like we're in homeschool groups with. And so I know some of the people that they're talking about and then having to wrestle with like, wow, no idea that person was that much of a jerk, but I can see it like, okay. And kind of had this moment over Christmas where I still don't even really know how to describe it, but it's like 10 years of rage just instantaneously melted into grief. And I like started having issues with having panic attacks when I would fall asleep. Mm. Like I'd be laying in bed. I would roll over to my left side and instantly feel claustrophobic and have a panic attack and Mm. be laying there feeling like I was having a heart attack and couldn't breathe. And it took me a while to realize what was happening. I had a, a friend, kind of an acquaintance from when I was growing up who actually had a heart attack over like the Christmas break, even though she's like in her young 30s. Turned out she had like a heart abnormality and that was what had kind of caused it. But I was like, it can happen to people in their 30s. Oh my gosh. And yeah. so like, I was instantly freaked like when my heart would start racing and stuff because I'd had a panic attack in the past, but it had been mostly I felt like I was going to faint or throw up. I'd never had the heart racing happen. Mm-hmm. And so this time when my heart starts racing, I'm like, this is it. This is it. And then nothing really happened. And then it happened again the next night. And then I started to realize it's happening every night at the same time in the same moment. That's not a heart attack, stupid. That's that's a panic attack. Mm-hmm. And so what's causing this panic? And ended up reaching out to a really good friend who's a functional medicine specialist and did some kind of work with that and starting to realize it was this heavy weight of grief that was crushing me literally almost to death. And that part of what I wasn't able to articulate until that moment, kind of working with her and kind of after the fact was this feeling of I have to carry this burden because to not carry it would be to just to stop listening, stop looking to pretend like this thing has gone away and to never try to see it again, knowing it's still out there and that I failed to actually fulfill this job for myself even. But that also now that I'm stuck with this burden, where do I put it? Like I can't put it on the people that I just took it from because that was the whole point of like listening to them and helping them carry it. I can't really take it to church I'm just recently switched churches and I'm still kind of getting to know people. And even though I think it's a much healthier space, there's still that kind of fear of like, maybe this is too much. Maybe they want it. Maybe they're not safe to be able to like give this to you. Like I have some suspicion with that. I could kind of give it to like, you know, talk with my mom and like people like that, but you know, they've got their own lives too. And there's a lot of stuff going on in our family at the moment. And so it's like, and so I'm just kind of left stuck here. And the realization I had was ordinarily I would, be told well you can just take it to jesus and that somewhere along the line i'd internalize the belief that jesus isn't safe either he doesn't want this burden either so now i'm going to have to carry it by myself and that realizing the theological framework that i have for myself would say that's not true that's a lie that he is always going to be the person that is meek and lowly of heart like he is here to help carry this burden but that I'm also going to have to get a lot smarter about how I personally practically carry it myself because what I'm currently doing isn't going to work. And realizing that the anger that I'd had for so long was a defense mechanism to never have to deal with the stuff that had happened to me. Yeah. Even if it wasn't necessarily, it's kind of like, you know, I used to hear, uh, I went to Bible college for undergrad and I used to hear this occasionally from people like, well, I don't have a cool testimony like them. Like I wasn't into drugs and like never almost murdered somebody. Like I was never in jail, you know, like, I was just a Christian my whole life. And like, you know, I just followed Jesus. Like, that's not that cool. And I would always tell people like, you don't have to have a cool testimony to follow Jesus. That's not the point. Mm -hmm. And I kind of had the same feeling of like, you don't have to have big trauma in order to have been traumatized. Absolutely. And you don't, and then one of the things too, that I started to, it was kind of an unexpected thing that I'd never heard before was in this abuse in the church class. We had a prosecutor come who had prosecuted sex crimes for a really long time and done a lot of work with church abuse survivors, specifically in a Catholic church. And she eventually had to step out of that work because she was almost suicidal, just dealing with all the stuff that she had seen and witnessed and was working with. And so now she, she does a different type of law that she says is like super boring. So that way it's better for her mental health that she does advocacy work and training for people to understand the law. Yeah. But she talked about this idea of, secondhand trauma or like you know like you listening to somebody tell you something traumatic can be just not just as traumatic but can be traumatic yeah in it's a like similar kind of cause yeah. the body to have mm-hmm. yeah and so kind of learning some of those things and realizing it's not bad to be angry but the anger is only going to carry you so far because at a certain point it becomes a survival mechanism to protect you from investigating this and doing the deep work within yourself mm-hmm. uh, and that there's a lot of power in working out of grief 
it changed a lot of the scope of the project that I was doing to be less on a defensive attack kind of a mode and more in an open challenge kind of mode, Yeah, which I think benefited the work I ended up doing for the thesis a ton, that it was a lot more open and invitational without losing the truth aspect of it. Hmm. I know that is, that's really powerful. And it's also just, I think that the idea of like, that's what art is, right? Like it starts a conversation. It, yeah. it allows people to access a story or even access something within themselves in a different way that just like directly telling you, Hey, abuse is in the church. Yeah. <laughs> someone could just like, you know, put up a wall and be like, Oh, la 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 at some churches, yeah. but not at my church. And right. You know, but when you, when you put all of these women together and they all have these similar experiences and they all have trauma and it all stems from a lot of it stems from their identity as being a woman, you can't, I mean, you can ignore it, but it makes it, I think, a little bit easier to just kind of see it all in this like very beautiful and artistic way as well. You may already know this, but the Uncertain Podcast is the affiliate podcast of Tears of Eden, a nonprofit that serves as a community and resource for survivors of spiritual abuse. This podcast and the work of Tears of Eden are supported by donations from generous listeners like you. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider giving a donation by using the link in the show notes or visiting tearsofeden.org support. You can also support the podcast by rating and leaving a review and sharing on social media. If you're not already following us, please follow us on Facebook at Tears of Eden and Instagram at Uncertain Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. And now back to the show. So this is the question that I thought of earlier while you were talking. Mm what is the way forward? What is the better way? Did you come up with any ideas for a better way for your niece? Like what do yeah. you ask your niece? I think one of the things I have very strongly tried to avoid as much as possible in the work that I'm doing is making very specific, they'll say at the Lord, this is how we should go forward. That was actually part of the move to work in collaboration with others recognizing that there's a bunch of stories I can't tell because I haven't had personal experiences with certain things, but that also when I work with 22 other people, I have 22 different options for how this could be made better. That what might work for someone may not work for me or what works for one church may not work for another church because of the area, the demographics, all those kinds of things. And so I think there's, there's some level of like resistance on my part to get too prescriptive, but at the same time, I do also have a litany of things in the back of my head that's like, well, it was me. This is exactly how I would do it. I think when I think about the work that I'm doing and the conversations that I'm having, and I think one of the biggest things has been we have got to learn how to be much more open to listen and much slower to take offense. And especially maybe not so much for people that are on more of like the victimized side, but on the side of either victimizer or people that are kind of in the middle that are kind of seeing both sides, but not really getting the story. And I think a lot of that is going to have to involve slowing down, listening, asking genuine questions and allowing yourself to be led by somebody without exactly knowing where you might end up, even if it feels a little bit scary. One of the, the things that is constantly frustrating and still actually makes me very angry is how much of Christianity in America is dictated by fear. And especially when there's so much in scripture about how fear is bad, (laughs) that, Mm -hmm. you know, perfect love casts out fear that like, that is not how the church should ever operate is out of fear. And yet most of what we see both in your actual Sunday service and in a larger like scale in a political sphere, it's it's all dictated by fear. And, and so it's reactionary. Yeah, like there's no response. It's all reaction. And so therefore you end up constantly going on the attack, which also then means you get sucked into culture war situations really easily. And then you have to pick a side, which is another thing I'm not a super huge fan of is being forced to pick a side when only two options are presented. I think one of the the most beautiful things about the gospel is that there's a third way offered sometimes even a fourth or a fifth way that like you don't have to accept what the world or religious leaders or anybody else says there's only two sides like maybe there's a third side that you're just not willing to embrace because it's going to require creative thinking 
and it's going to mean that you're going to lose a little more than you gain. Yeah. And so nuance and complexity. Yeah. I think as I'm kind of thinking about things, I would love to see change in the church. It's that willingness and openness to listen, a willingness to admit that you're afraid and then push past that fear to say, we can't let that dictate how we operate. But then I think too, especially as I think about my niece, I think about, and I think a lot about people are kind of coming up in the generations younger than me. There's a pretty decent group of them in my kind of collaborative group that are all just out of high school. And they're so smart. Like they see through the lies of stuff so much younger than I did. You know, like I'm, I'm actually, today's my birthday. I'm 34. Happy you know? birthday. Thanks. Happy but like, I was into my thirties before I realized that purity culture is actually super toxic and had impacted my view of myself and could potentially impact future relationships and stuff down the line. I have no idea. I'm hoping that maybe I caught it soon enough, (laughs) you know, (laughs) but like, like 18, 19 year olds who are like, like, that's, that's all bullshit. Like, yeah, it's (laughs) like, no, we're not doing that. And so as I think about my niece and people, her age, she's uh, two and a half now. She's, the most brilliant person I think I've ever met. She's so smart and I want to make sure, and actually I have a nephew now as well. And since that time, my sister had a second baby and I think about the both of them a lot and how some of this change is going to have to happen in really small everyday kind of ways. Like all of us would really like to see everything change at the big global scale to say like, this never happens anymore. We got rid of this. This is all gone and done. But I don't think that's actually how change happens over time and stays sustainable you know, it's true, like an exercise, like, you know, you could just go try to run a marathon without having practice, but you're going to fail every time. But if you made consistent daily efforts every single day and kept doing it, practicing, you would eventually yeah, get there. Exactly. And so we're not going to change this in any different way than any other change happens. It's going to be slow, yeah. intentional and, and constantly moving forward. So, which Interestingly enough, is something that I think art brings beautifully to the table because a lot of practicing as an artist is daily doing it, you know, and consistently practicing a craft to be able to present something in a visual form that people can connect to and hopefully be inspired or challenged by. Yeah, no, and I'm I'm so glad that you have added your voice to the mix of artists and also researchers who are are adding to this conversation and inviting people into this conversation and also giving a lot of women a voice to tell their stories. I can definitely tell from your project that that is, that is what happened. I have one like final fun question to ask you but yeah. before I do that. Is there anything else that you want to say? And then are you working on anything else? After? Yeah. So one of the things I definitely want to say, I sometimes feel like I'm a weird unicorn in this art sphere to be both in the contemporary art scene, working and researching as an artist, but then also to be talking specifically about evangelicalism as an insider in the community. There's a lot of people that stand outside the church and say, the church is bad. Let's make art about it or have critiques of that. Some of them are very valid. I can't tell you how many times I've stood there looking at something that's kind of a spicy anti-church piece of art going, well, they're not wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I can't really be mad. Uh, I was just talking to my brother the other day. We was talking about, like, how Christian people are portrayed in film. We were watching The Fablemans, the new Steven Spielberg movie. And there's one, the main character, Sammy, has this Christian girlfriend for a little bit who's, like, insane. And Nate's like, my brother, he's like, why do they always present Christian people as crazy people? And I'm like, well, (laughs) (laughs) we did it to ourselves in a lesson. And I'm like... And to give Spielberg credit, it's not like he always presents Christian people as crazy. It's just when the they movie make is appropriate. Amazing, like, make amazing crazy people. They make amazing villains. The character. Right? The, it's right. a caricature, but it's also like, I know those people are real. You know right. those yeah. people it's are like real. I've, I've witnessed I have met people, these like, people. They it is uncomfortable this. how many names spring <laughs> to mind when I see some of these characters. Yes. Yeah. And so like, but like within that though, I keep having this moment of like, I know I'm not the only one that is both still a very much active practicing Christian and is also deeply concerned about the things they see and wants to make art about what they're seeing. But I kind of feel like I'm the only one. Yeah. And so I'm on the search and on the hunt right now for other people that are trying to have this conversation. Yes. (laughs) Contact info in the show notes. (laughs) Yes. Cause reach out. 
like I can't be the only person that is talking about this as an artist as a Christian mm-hmm. I may be one of the first ones to want to do it at a very public stage some of that was mostly because I had to do a thesis as part of my grad work <laughs> but I think too nothing changes if we don't like work out loud mm-hmm. and so like there's a lot of work that can be done in private within yourself within talking to others in smaller communities but at a certain stage we're going to have to get very loud about what we're seeing and what's going on and art has an amazing opportunity to be able to do that in a way that can challenge people without necessarily making them reactive Mm -hmm. to be able to invite in and once they're in kind of hit them with the one-two punch of this is the truth and we need to do something different yeah so that's kind of my my pitch what yeah. is the poem that says tell the truth but tell it slant? I yes. Can't remember who wrote that? Oh, I know that. Not Emily Dickinson. I don't think it's Emily Dickinson. I but know yeah. this poem, but I should. <laughs> but basically that's what it says. It's like you're telling the truth but you're telling it in this way that yeah. gets into people's souls and gets into people's hearts because it's not it's not direct. Yeah. Trying to kind of sneak in from the back door a little bit to be like I'm your friend coming in to tell you this is a problem. It could be people coming in the front door because they're very angry and they don't understand this community or what's going on. Listen to me first. Yeah. <laughs> this is your opportunity to make change before it gets really, really ugly. In terms of what's coming up, I actually am working on stuff for technically a solo show, but it feels weird to call it a solo show because I'm working in collaboration with others. I guess it's solo in the sense that I came up with the idea initially, but at this point, it's an idea very much influenced by and worked with with other people. But that will be, it's called the Women's Chapel, and it's going to be in December and January at Intersect Arts Gallery in South City, St. Louis. And it's going to be a exhibition devoted to the stories of evangelical women of all ages, races, sexual orientations, gender expressions, the whole, like, the whole group. We're a yeah. really weird bunch yeah. <laughs> and we have a lot of stories to tell. And so it's work that's both some self-portraiture work that I've done kind of investigating my own story and the journey that I've been on. Uh, it's work that we'll done together as a group with me kind of more facilitating and them kind of making things to tell their own stories. And then also work kind of like the one that's up in the thesis show currently that is work that I do, but it flows out of conversations I've had with my group and features kind of them and their stories. And so kind of working with them to kind of present those sorts of things. So that's, that will be, it's up for, it should be up for two months and I'll have more info on that probably in my social media as the months get closer. Fantastic. Fantastic. And I can't wait to see the show. Yeah. Yeah. So the final fun question is what is a piece of art book? movie, TV show, visual art that is meaningful to you right now? Mm. Well, that's a really good question. Honestly, I'm actually going to go with The Fablemans, the movie by Steven Spielberg that's kind of loosely an autobiography of his actual life and how he became a director. And where is it, that? Where is it? Is it streaming? It is now? streaming on Showtime right now. I know you can probably like rent it on Amazon Prime and stuff like that. I got to see it in the theater when it was out over Christmas time. And it's it is beautiful. It's it's an amazing thing to watch a filmmaker that's told stories for like 60 or 70 years now. Like he's getting kind of old. And to see so many of the themes that he's developed across all of his movies. Yeah. And then to kind of have this moment of closure as he's kind of talking about, you know, how his family was broken and how he was trying to be an artist kind of in the midst of that. But he didn't know what that looked like. And sometimes it felt like maybe it was making everything worse instead of better. And it's, I mean, the cinematography in it is gorgeous. The music is gorgeous. The acting is just like top notch. Especially considering like half the cast is like young children or like teenagers. A lot of new, you know, kind of faces. And there's just so many moments in it that are just so beautiful and heart-wrenching. As somebody who's an artist and having to constantly kind of struggle against like even having parents that are very supportive of the journey, like there's still moments where it's like, I'm going to have to choose art over something else. And so oh, that kind yeah. of a journey to determine, of how, do I really want to be an artist? It is. Yeah. So that would be, that yeah. would be, I've, I've watched it twice now. It's very long. Like you, you got to be in it for the long haul, <laughs> mm. but, and it's a weird movie in that nothing really happens per se. Like it's just about character and like these family relationships, like there's no big explosions or crazy things. And yet, it's really gripping and engrossing and like 
just watching this like you know this young man kind of grow from child to adult trying to do this thing that's actually really hard to do Mm -hmm. and kind of through that process becoming who he's going to be and so I think it's a really beautiful movie it's really really cool oh well thank you for sharing that and I'm definitely gonna look for that because it sounds like something I would really love to watch yeah. but thank you for answering that question thank you so much for dedicating your time and just just the hard work of putting your project together I know it was for school and there was enriching stuffs but as some someone who sits with these stories on a daily basis it's it's very challenging to do to hold those stories and to carry them in a compassionate way and allow space for someone to really access what they want to say and help them express it that's a really challenging job and I feel like you did it so well and so thank you for coming on and giving us a a glimpse into that process and inviting me to your show I loved it well thank you it's been it's been fun to get to share it with people and get to hear some of the feedback and then to know that it is actually I don't know how much it's challenging people because I don't know if I'll hear from those people, but I know that it's at least encouraging people and that Absolutely, is definitely yeah. one of the goals. So, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, I think, I think it encouraged me just to be like, I mean, even though like, I mean, I do, I literally work on this like every single day, but just to like see someone else put something together and share these stories and be like, Oh, it's real. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. I can't tell you how many times I have nearly gaslit myself out of doing this work. Like, it was literally in the spring, like having panic attacks going, am I just being ridiculous? Like maybe this isn't this big of a deal. And then going, you literally can't sleep at night because of this. Like, this is a big deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I love, I love that year. The birth of your niece was a catalyst for all of this too. And just like that, holding on to that motivation. I think I forget that motivation, but just like, I don't want other girls to have to exist this way like I want to leave this world just a little bit better and and can it be just a little bit better it was a little bit better so yeah well thank you again that is a wrap thanks so much for joining us today uncertain is the affiliate podcast of tears of eden a community and resource for survivors of spiritual abuse if you're enjoying this podcast please consider making a donation by visiting tearsofeden.org support. All donations are tax deductible. Intro music featured in this episode is from the band Green Ashes. Before you go, please take a moment to like, subscribe, or leave a review, and don't forget to share this podcast show with everyone you know. I'm Katherine Spearing, and I'll see you next time.